And welcome again to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian here, and Dan is with me. Hey, Brian? So, we're here on the eve of Thanksgiving recording, Dan. This is, uh, I guess it's two days before Thanksgiving, as we're sitting here. Right, but it's, it's Thanksgiving week for sure. Everything is all upended, going to be closed for a few days at the end of the week. At least for me, I don't know about you, Brian. Are you, are you off on Friday too? Yep, I've got Thursday and Friday. There you go. So, shopping time, I guess. Yeah, although the hot thing this year is give the workers a break and don't shop on Black Friday. So, we'll see what what people end up doing. Yep. It's uh, time for retrospection, for expressing gratitude. And so, I wanted to thank you for being here with me today, Dan, as you are every week. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you to you as well. A lot of gratitude on my end for getting to do this week in, week out, and gratitude to the listeners, especially the handful of you who stick with us every single week. Yep, tell your friends. Thankful for any new listeners. And just as we always do, we have another movie queued up. So the film we are covering this time around is Clash of the Titans from 1981. And I brought this one to the table because I am a fan of Ray Harryhausen. Now, Harryhausen was a special effects pioneer known for his stop-motion sequences. He called his technique Dynamation, and it usually combined live actors with these beasts that he would make, these mythological creatures, and, and the people fight the monsters. So pterodactyls and other dinosaurs and giant apes and two-headed birds and things of that ilk. So were you familiar with any Harryhausen films up to this week, Dan? <laughs> no. Well, so that's interesting. I don't think so is the answer. The technique looked a little bit familiar. And weirdly, when the Bubo, who's the name of the bird that appears in this one, appeared on screen, I was like, is it possible I saw this one in high school? Because this bird seems really familiar. Maybe I was thinking of something from Power Rangers because they had weird effects in Power Rangers sometimes too. I don't know. But no, not really is the answer uh, up until this this past week. So I, I watched Clash of the Titans and I thought also it would be interesting to go back to the beginning of Harryhausen's career. I also watched Mighty Joe Young from 1949, like a full 32 years earlier where he did the effects of a big King Kong-like ape in that one. My only other exposure that I can recall of is in Gravity Falls, there is a Ray Harryhausen tribute episode that we liked. That's right. So we'll kind of be talking about the bookends of Harryhausen's career because Clash of the Titans was the very last movie he contributed effects for coming out uh, at the tail end of his career. It doesn't really feel like an 80s movie, I will say. I agree. Very much. Kind of strange to imagine it coming out the same year as Raiders of the Lost Ark and a whole year after Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, I think it's deliberately a throwback style that feels really dated. Yeah. But I was no stranger to Harryhausen, though I had not seen this movie before, actually, because uh, when I was growing up, kind of a traditional Christmas gift that I would get was some old movie on VHS. 
And a lot of these that my folks got for me were Harryhausen movies. So, for instance, It Came from Beneath the Sea from 1955, which has a giant octopus. Seventh Voyage of Sinbad from 1958, which was really his most well-known work and just his early tour de force. That's the one with the Cyclops that was parodied in Gravity Falls. It was the first of a trilogy of Sinbad movies that he did. There's a Gulliver film that he did that I've seen. Mysterious Island, which was Jules Verne's sequel to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, where it's people on an island fighting off a bunch of giant animals. Probably Harryhausen's most iconic movie, and the one that Clash of the Titans shares the most connective tissue with, was Jason and the Argonauts from 1963. So maybe the other most iconic creation of Harryhausen, in addition to the Cyclops from Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, was the skeleton battle at the climax of Jason and the Argonauts. Had you ever seen that mentioned in any of your film books, Dan? Not that I can recall of. I'm sure if I saw a clip of it, I wouldn't be surprised if I've seen either stills of it or clips of it at some point in my life, but uh, not ringing a bell right now. Yeah, well, definitely a great sequence. And Harryhausen had influence on a lot of the up-and-coming science fiction and fantasy and other genre directors coming up behind him. I watched a indie documentary once called The Sci-Fi Boys, which was pretty much all about like young Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Peter Jackson being influenced by Harryhausen stuff all his creatures. Yeah, as we were watching this, I thought quite a bit about Jurassic Park in particular, because that one used a blend of big animatronic, but practical things, but also with some CGI in that. So that one was also a pioneer in CGI. And I think some of the like tactile and just immersive nature of the Harryhausen effect was really heightened in Jurassic Park, for example, in, in terms of capturing a monster that you can just feel the presence of on the screen. Definitely. And just like how in Jurassic Park, it's a mix of, you know, like you'll have a close-up shot and it'll be an animatronic and then it'll be a wide shot and it'll be the digital. It does stuff like that here where like in close-up, you'll have a goat man who's an actor and then it'll go to a wide shot and it'll be the goat man in stop motion and things like that. Yeah. You know, depending on how close you have to see it, the technology changes. And one thing you mentioned that I just want to emphasize as kind of background for talking about these effects, the effects themselves are very cool. But to me, perhaps even more impressive is how seamlessly, in most cases, it interacts with other things that are happening on the screen. Like there are many times where there would be something that one of his effects did that interacted with something else on screen. And I was just baffled how they managed to pull it off. It's very cool. One of his tricks he likes to pull all the time is having a human throw a rope around a monster. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like uh, there's one that he did called the Valley of Gwangi, which is about cowboys fighting dinosaurs. And they're just running around lassoing like T-Rexes and stuff. Oh, man. 
And so you got a person yanking on one end of a rope <laughs> and the stop motion creature yanking on the other end. And you're definitely left scratching your head of how'd they do that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. I'm kind of jumping around chronologically, but I think it's worth noting that Harryhausen lived from 1920 to 2013. What? Really? So wow. He died at the age of 92. And uh, actually, another Christmas gift one year is I got this coffee table book called A Century of Stop Motion, and it's by Ray Harryhausen, and it came out in 2008. That is awesome. So I got to share this book with you at some point, Dan. Yeah, I want to see it. Is it got a lot of pictures in it? It does, as any coffee table book worth its salt tends to do. But uh, he got his start apprenticing under the other big name in stop motion history early on, who was Willis O'Brien, the guy who is best known for doing the effects for King Kong. A few years before, he also did a silent film prominently featuring dinosaurs called The Lost World. And Mighty Joe Young, which I think was 1949, right? Yes. That was the collab, kind of the passing of the torch between Willis O'Brien and his protege, Ray Harryhausen. In some ways, it's kind of a follow-up to King Kong. Is that fair? (laughs) I actually have not seen the 1933 King Kong, so... I don't necessarily want to speak to it, but I know enough about the story of King Kong to say that this borrows very heavily from it on story points. And yeah, the effects, the stop motion in that is really impressive. I mean, it's mainly the big monkey who's animated in that one, of course. There's a couple of lions too. And I found the story on that one to be a little underwhelming as well as the acting. And I think that's also one thing to note about Harryhausen is His effects are renowned, but the movies in which he implemented those effects don't necessarily have a high standing reputation in the cinephile crowd. Like, I think they're just kind of B-movies generally that often have hit or miss scripts and acting. But yeah, the the monkey was crazy impressive. The the real showstopper on that one is there's this the kind of the thing of the plot is this girl grew up in Africa with this monkey that she adopted when was a baby. It became really huge. This guy, uh, this kind of Hollywood type guy on a trip to Africa, spotted them and decided to bring them to the U.S. to like be the centerpiece of this big kind of show that's also a restaurant. And so like the ape comes out and does tricks at the Hollywood show. And of course, something goes wrong at some point and the ape is going you know, Hulk smash and destroying everything that we've seen. It's like tossing lions around, like live lions interacting with this big monkey. It's like, how did they manage to pull this off? Really, really cool stuff. The problem is that's like the middle of the film. And then the the last, you know, half hour of the film is uh, pretty bland in comparison. But man, the fact that he was doing effects this cool for three decades is pretty impressive. Definitely. And I don't want to drown you guys in context, but I also wanted to shout out a couple movies that were kind of Harryhausen knockoffs during the same period when his stuff was popular. So one is called Jack the Giant Killer from 1962, which was kind of my original concept for an episode selection, but I felt like it wouldn't make any sense without showing a real proper Harryhausen first. (laughs) But like back before we put this podcast together, I came up with kind of a short list of 10 movies that were 
influential on me that I hadn't ever um, written about or really talked about at length before. And Jack the Giant Killer was on there. And it's just another one of these uh, fantasy adventures with stop motion effects from the 60s. But what's kind of interesting about it is it was made by a producer who was very clearly trying to copy the successful formula of Seventh Voyage of Sinbad from 1958. And so he hired the star, a guy named Kerwin Matthews, the villain from Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and the director. So basically he got all those guys and said, okay, just do it again. Just make <laughs> Seventh Voyage of Sinbad again. But who he didn't get is Ray Harryhausen. <laughs> so it's like, it's not going to be the same. Like, it's not the humans that people are watching these for. Right. Another one kind of in that boat is a movie called Captain Sindbad from 1963 with a D in there. <laughs> and this is one that was also kind of lumped in for me with all the authentic Harryhausens. It's got Guy Williams, the dad from Lost in Space in it, playing Sindbad. Sindbad. Sindbad, sorry. <laughs> Not to be confused with Sindbad and his seven voyages. Right. But this one... Like, I never really saw a difference in the effects. They're, they're notably worse now, looking back. Uh, one thing is he fights an invisible monster. That's a great way to dodge budget issues. <laughs> Make the monster invisible. Although I will say we get quite a bit of invisibility in Clash of the Titans 2, and it seemed like it was probably still expensive. Like, they did some interesting things with the invisibility. Right, with the footprints and stuff. Yeah. It's not really a main effect. This this movie's got like a scattershot of effects. Yeah, it's kind of all over the place. And that's kind of a third tier one that they, they have there, yeah. But yeah, I think you could say I'm a fan of the sword and sandal genre overall. Just big in the in this period, fifties, sixties. You got all the Bible epics. You got, you know, Italy churning out stuff. And just di all kinds of different price points on these things. You got, you know, uh, Cleopatra, like, tipping the budget scales. Some people say if you're just for inf inflation, like, the most expensive movie ever. You got the casts of thousands in some of them. It's just very popular to have these ancient set biblical or mythological films around this time. Yeah, and I watched The Granddaddy of Them All earlier this year. That was Intolerance. By D.W. Griffith from, I think, 1916, which has a huge Babylon set. It's probably the, it's that one takes place in like four different time periods. And I think the Babylon one is the coolest one. It is literally thousands of people on screen sometimes. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. And Cecil B. DeMille made some in the 20s, which he would then remake in the later 50s. Right. So I, I don't really have any sentimentality towards these ones. I, no nostalgia for them. I didn't really watch them very much growing up. So, you know, I, I kind of feel like if this is a baseline that you have, because it's something you watch growing up, you might have a little bit more of a soft spot for a movie like this. For me, that was not something I could bank on in terms of in, enjoying this movie. <laughs> I will reiterate that it definitely feels rooted in the time period. I keep talking about Clash of the Titans like it's a 60s movie. It's right. not. It's an 80s movie. It's from 1981. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Uh, it definitely feels like a 60s film, though. And one more thing I want to shout out. You were talking about like the big budget Bible epics and stuff as part of the sword and sandal genre or subgenre or whatever. But there's this, I, I'm sure I probably mentioned it on the pod before, 
there's this really great series that AV Club, the pop culture website, ran called The Popcorn Champs, which wrote a in-depth review and analysis of every top grossing movie from every year. So it's one article, one movie per year going back to, man, maybe the 50s, maybe the 60s. Um, Yeah, the very first one was actually Spartacus, apparently. So yeah, 1960. Okay, so every year since 1960. And there were these movies that I'd just never heard of that were generally in this genre that topped the charts. Like there was a one called The Bible, which is I think it was just called The Bible. Oh, no, sorry. It's in the the Bible in the beginning from 1966, the highest grossing movie, definitely in this sword and sandal genre, although from a biblical perspective, of course, given the title. But I'm not sure I fully processed how big these actually were back in the day. They were definitely a thing. But uh, if you ever want kind of an overview of that, the rise and fall of that genre, that series I recommended is pretty great. Yeah, I'd be interested to read that. So with all of that introduction at last complete, I guess we got to tackle this movie where (laughs) quite a few things happen. This is plot intense. It's a fairly long film. It clocks in at pretty much two hours even, but there's just a lot of going from point A to point B to find the thing you need to have to get to point C and defeat Monster D. It's a long, large plot. It's not very complicated. It's like one fetch quest after another. Gotta go get this thing. Gotta go get this thing. Gotta go get this thing, etc. Yeah. So your mileage may vary in comparison. You know, there are long movies where nothing happens. <laughs> Think uh, Jonas Mikas or <laughs> Wheeler Dixon. And there's shorter films where a lot of stuff happens. And this this one is a little long on the runtime. But uh, we'll we'll try to keep you apprised of, of what happens. In brief, it's a telling of the Perseus myth from ancient Greece. Perseus being the one who fought Medusa. Actually, in reading, like, the Wikipedia articles to summarize the movie, I found that, like, a lot of what we see is from the myth. And there's, like, you know, pot paintings on the amphora or whatever. All the all the crockery, as they say in Disney's Hercules. <laughs> Just these scenes that are painted on the vases showing different stuff from this movie. The, the sea monster coming out and attacking the girl tied to the cliff. This is, like, genuinely an ancient story, although there is some invention and uh, poetic liberty taking place. You mentioned Hercules, and I just want to say this movie does not open with a gospel group giving us the the background story. And I kept thinking, when are the muses going to pop out and start singing an R&B song about what's happening right now? And it just never happened. (laughs) Although uh, one thing I think is interesting is that in this one name we didn't name drop in talking about the uh, major blockbusters in the biblical and or sword and sandal films era was Charlton Heston, the star who played Moses in the Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur in Ben-Hur. But at the start of Disney's Hercules, like the intro that you're talking about, it opens in like a museum and there's these, you know, story pots and various other ancient relics. And it starts with kind of an epic fanfare and narration that says, In the land of ancient Greece, there was an age of heroes. Something along those lines. 
and that voice is Charlton Heston. Oh, wow. I never knew that. And then he gets interrupted by the muses. Right. That I didn't. That's really cool that that was actually Heston. I thought it was just a parody of Heston-type movies, but that's cool that it was him. Yeah. So I'm going to try to fly over some of these uh, nitpicky details, but uh, when it opens up, we see this mad king, Acrisius, who is setting his daughter and his new grandson adrift in a sealed boat. Apparently he's doing this because he's got, like, weird, lusty issues over the virginity of his daughter, and I guess Zeus, as he always does, has visited her in disguise, as he, he does with many a maiden. So Perseus is actually the son of Zeus. Yeah, that it gets mentioned later on, but you miss it in the beginning. It's also not very much dwelled upon. It's kind of an important thing, and it's like very, I don't know, hand wave. Yeah, there's several details of this story that are told to us like secondhand rather than being shown to us, and the order is weird. Yeah. And so this is one of those things. It's like the crazy king is sending them out in the boat, and then later Zeus is, like, chatting with some of his other gods and goddesses, and they just kind of offhandedly say that the reason the king is mad is that Perseus is Zeus's son. But Zeus is played by Laurence Olivier, which is kind of cool. Well-known British Shakespearean actor. Very good at delivering these pronouncements in an austere and intense manner. Although he, he just makes the character come across as an unmitigated asshole the entire time. The gods, enjoy, I mean, I know that's like kind of a recurring thing in Greek myths is that the gods are often like assholes and or incompetent. But I was just kind of tired of Zeus. He's like this big, huffy, patriarchal guy. Not not much going on except just making proclamations with him. Yeah. One thing that this movie shares in common with Jason and the Argonauts is that you get kind of a framework for the story or just an outer layer of the mortal events where you see the gods kind of controlling and interposing their will into the events and they kind of have game pieces representing their favored mortals that they're manipulating so i was trying to decide there's no way that this is all humans they don't have a clay figure for every person because it's like one shelf they have there's not a scalable solution for human management if they're trying to have a figure for each person it's like there's seven billion of us now that would be like you know thousands and thousands of huge library shelves that you'd need to manage us I got the impression that they could, like, make one if they needed to. Interesting. And maybe there's only a handful of people they really care about. <laughs> and each god or goddess or other deity has, like, their little baseball card collection of humans that are on their team. And so they're, they're kind of like playing war games. They're like playing uh, Warhammer 40,000 with their little person models. And it'll, you know, vacillate. It'll go back and forth between scenes of the gods' decisions and scenes of what's happening in the mortal realm. We see a couple familiar faces among the other deities kind of hanging out in this council chamber that's all marble up on Mount Olympus. So who else did we see here, Dan? Well, the big one is Professor McGonagall, Maggie Smith. Yeah, younger Maggie Smith playing the sea goddess Thetis, 
who I believe was just like a water nymph or something. Not one you normally hear mentioned in the big pantheon, but she's prominent in this film. She's definitely prominent. Yeah. I, w- I had never heard of this goddess. I was wondering if she was made up or something like that. Cause there's also, if I'm not mistaken, Neptune or whatever he's called here, Poseidon, who is he the one controlling the sea creatures? Yeah. So we have Poseidon who got of the sea. They got that right. But then they're like equating Thetis as like maybe Poseidon's wife. It's a little hard to tell, but she she plays some role in the sea as well, and she's going to be important here in the movie. But also depicted in the script, at least, as like a paragon of beauty. And, you know, she's she's an actress and she's a beautiful woman, but she's not like... She is younger here, I will say. Yeah. Younger than in, you know, 2001 Harry Potter. But she doesn't come across as like a sex symbol beauty, you know? No, not at all. But many times they're talking about the beauty of Thetis. And I think it's no coincidence that Maggie Smith's husband wrote this script. Oh, man. (laughs) His name was Beverly Cross. But on the other hand, I mean, Perseus as an adult is played by a guy named Harry Hamlin. And Harry Hamlin's real wife is in the movie playing Aphrodite. So definitely some nepotism here. Oh, wow. Definitely some, like, praising of the wives. Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) No, yeah. Isn't that what um, Orson Welles did in F for Fake, too? That's right. Flaunt his beautiful wife. When you've got the power to make the movie, you can dedicate four minutes or however much to ogling Oya Kodar. (laughs) So to step back for a moment, Zeus's son is Perseus. And right now he's in peril on the ocean at the very beginning of the movie. And Zeus is not having that. He tells the gods, look, we got to look out for my kid. So make sure he floats somewhere safe on the ocean, Moses style. And we need to get vengeance on Acrisius, this king. So I'm going to release the Kraken and destroy Acrisius and his town. Things I knew about this movie before I saw it, well... We'll get to the the bird that Dan mentioned in a little while. I knew about him. But the other thing is the line, release the Kraken. And we we hear it a couple times here. The Kraken being this big sea monster that comes up out of the waves. Uh, Poseidon opens the gate and we see it come up and like unleash the floods and destroy the city. Yeah, we kind of get a a tease of him here. And I was a little disappointed at first because I didn't know he was going to reappear at the end at first. But... Like, we only get a glimpse of him, and then we just get the destruction. We don't get a full-on Kraken shot at this this opening 15 minutes, if I'm not mistaken. Right, but he will reappear. Right. Nerd moment. Kraken is like a Scandinavian term. Usually refers to, like, a giant octopus or a giant squid. That's not really what this thing is. And in the Perseus myth, the actual name for this creature that comes out of the sea is called Cetus. Uh, C-E-T-I-S, I think, maybe C-E-T-U-S. It's the namesake of cetaceans, which are whales and dolphins. Oh, yeah, that's a constellation, Cetus. Yeah, we're going to find that a lot of these guys are constellations. Yeah. <laughs> one thing on the destruction, this was one of my favorite examples of non-stop motion production values in this. Really cool how it's like a, a really fully formed Greek form or something like that, and... Huge floods are coming in, 
knocking down columns and forums and all that shit is pretty awesome. I, I, I was digging this moment. Yeah, statues are getting toppled. There's some cool, like, mat effects where you've got, like, the layer of the water pouring in over everybody and the layer of people running around screaming. Yeah, effectively put together. As per Zeus's will, Perseus drifts to a peaceful island and grows up there in a montage. And as an adult, he's played by this guy named Harry Hamlin. And... Every time I got a close-up of this guy, I could not get over that he looks like one of those, like, ultra-testosterone memes. <laughs> Just a super-chiseled jawline. Like, his brow is so prominent. It must have been painful for him to, like, talk. <laughs> he definitely looks like a Chad, for sure. Yeah, like, guest on plus. And where he was gifted in the jawline front... He was not so gifted in the acting front, I would say. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. He, he's a handsome slab of generic hunkiness and not too much interiority or screen presence beyond that, I would say. Yeah. So he's an adult now. That's the important thing. And now we get introduced to one of our key villains in a way that was just really weird and like oblique, not direct again we're being told rather than shown things because maggie smith goes to implore zeus please don't punish my son calibos and i was left wondering well who the heck is calibos that's not somebody we've heard about yet <laughs> uh, i mean is that fair yeah no it was like a lot of questions here first of all who is calibos i was right with you and this dude gets a shit break, man. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's like, apparently Calibos is this bad guy, but we've never met him. We're just learning about him through the things that Zeus and Thetis are saying. So apparently this is a child of Thetis's, Maggie Smith's. Uh, I guess maybe with a mortal. It's not clear who the dad is, but he's a prince of somewhere. And the information that we get, again, all secondhand, is that he is engaged to be married to Princess Andromeda of Joppa, which I guess is the capital city or just a big city in Phoenicia. The Phoenicians being a seafaring people. And I looked it up. I guess it's based around where uh, Israel and Lebanon are today. But he, like, hasn't been attentive to his duties or he's a sadist or something again we're, we don't see any of this but the thing that zeus seems really pissed about is calibos was in charge of the winged horses and he either killed them all or let them die and i think that's a big gulf there we don't know exactly what he did like did he just forget to feed them or is he like torturing them we don't know this is like a one sentence of exposition. I had even forgot about that. I thought it was just, I don't know, God bullshittery, which it kind of still is. But yeah, I guess it was something like that. Like he neglected his duties. And so the punishment is Zeus picks up the little Calibos action figure and like squooshes the clay until he's a monster now. It's a few scenes before we get a, a reveal on him, but... Definitely setting up that we're going to see what this ugly MF looks like now. 
Yeah, and so now Thetis is pissed at Zeus because, oh, Zeus can intervene to protect his little demigod love child, but far be it from him to help out another god with their, like, similar issues. You know, everybody's got a human love child. Why can't you help out a fellow deity? I thought it was interesting that supposedly the winged horses live in the wells of the moon. And do you remember where we've previously heard about the <laughs> wells of the moon, Dan? <laughs> Why don't you tell us, Brian? Well, the great wizard Feyun from Max Magician and the Legend of the Rings claims to have been to the wells of the moon. <laughs> This is not the only time Max Magician is going to come up in this episode. I can spoil here. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> but now Thetis is mad at Zeus, mad at Perseus, and she also picks up the action figure and warps Perseus to Joppa. She says it's time for him to face reality. <laughs> I don't know if anything in this movie can really be called facing reality, but uh, now he's been magicked to a new realm and he wakes up in an amphitheater and he meets his obi-wan kenobi his old mentor character this is burgess meredith and have you seen much with burgess meredith in it dan i think the only thing i've seen him in is the old batman stuff when he played the penguin yep that's a classic he was in a bunch of good twilight zone episodes and I've seen him in a movie, a movie series, actually, as another mentor character. He played Rocky's trainer, Mickey, in the Rocky films. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, yeah. I think it's Mickey, or Mick. But so that's what I was thinking of in this film is, you gotta do it, Perseus. You gotta punch the monster. You gotta punch that robotic side of stop-motion beef. You gotta run up the ancient Greek court steps. <laughs> Forum steps, yeah. No, I really liked his performance here. He was, to me, the clear standout on the acting front in terms of, like, bringing something beyond what is written in the screenplay to the character, just some charm to him. And so I, I was digging them. And the way that he gets introduced is kind of cool. He, like, Perseus wakes up all disoriented and out comes some guy in, like, a Greek tragedy mask. So, like, the kind of exaggerated masks that you kind of see as the symbol for the arts these days. Yeah, it was kind of like the scene in Scream 2. I was thinking that too, yeah. And, oh, and he's like kind of whispering or like half whispering these creepy, like, I don't I don't know exactly what it is, like mystical things. I can't remember exactly what he said. And it's like, what is this creepy dude? Are we in danger? And then he pulls it off and it's like the equivalent of the Danny DeVito character from the Hercules movie. And, and he's all friendly and stuff. But I like this scene where we meet him. yeah. Although, like, how is an old actor going to be a useful mentor to Perseus? He's not necessarily presented as a mentor. He's like, he claims to be a playwright or a muse or, so, you know, someone who's like, not, not muse in the sense of the gods, but like someone who's an actor and a playwright. And so he knows all the grand stories and he knows all the legends and the myths so he can tell Perseus about them. I guess, is the idea. That's fair. Because you're right. He doesn't, like, know how to use a sword. You know, Obi-Wan was a Jedi, and he's training Luke to be a Jedi. This guy's an actor, and now he's got a hero to, like, <laughs> right. help along. But he, he is, I mean, he's a nice old man, and he's he's going to be along for the journey. And about half of his lines are like, 
oh, you can't do that. That's impossible. Unless... And then something that Perseus has to go do. Mm-hmm. But Perseus is also helped along because Zeus intervenes again. He goes to his gods and says, hey, give Perseus gifts so that he can fight better. And uh, so he gets gifted a sword, like a super sword that can cut stone. He gets a shield and he gets this helmet that makes him invisible. So he's got his power ups now. Why do the gods care what Zeus says? I'd just be like, no, I'm not giving him my helmet. Sorry, Zeus. Tough break. Well, Zeus is the, the boss god. He's the god of gods. I guess so. The gods, they just like stand around. That that got to me. It's like, I, I hate to keep bringing this back to Disney, Hercules, but like, the, sure enough, they just kind of hung out on Olympus too, but like, they were all expressive and like, personified what their god was. This is just like, middle-aged white people standing around making proclamations at each other. Yeah, the blocking isn't very compelling. They they literally are all standing in a circle in a big featureless marble room. It it only gets a little visually interesting whenever they pull out the the models and the game table. Right, yeah. But Perseus and this old actor whose name is Amon, they head into the city of Joppa where they meet this guard guy who's got a scruffy beard. He kind of looks like a Geico caveman. And he delivers this great exposition monologue. And I was afraid that we might not get to see any more of this character because he just kind of randomly shows up to explain how things are going in the city. Now, you'll remember that uh, Calabos got deformed. I guess the princess didn't want him anymore now that he's a monster, which, I mean, I guess that's fair. But uh, again, we've never seen Calabos. We don't know what he's really like or what he's feeling about this whole thing. But apparently, uh, because he's been rejected, Calavos has, like, cast a spell over the town. And anybody who wants to marry the princess has to answer a riddle that Calavos is handing down, like, via decree. And it's different for every dude who tries it. And if they get it wrong, they have to be burned at the stake. So says caveman guard number one. <laughs> Standing here by the pyre. <laughs> yeah. I just had to roll with these, this mechanics of this riddle and stuff. And it did not ever end up making too much sense to me. There's just overall in this movie, a lot of telling and then showing. When it's like, if we paused and kind of unraveled this thing and told it a little bit more chronologically, it might, might flow a little better and ultimately save us some time feel like there's some backtracking happening but remember perseus can turn invisible and so just like any 80s like revenge of the nerds type movie he's gonna be a creeper and sneak into the girl's locker room he uh he turns invisible he goes up to the princess's bedchamber and he's immediately love struck but uh there's there's a purpose to his mission because he's he wants to find out like the mechanics of this curse i guess they do an effect that actually Gauntley has done this effect. So this one's not too hard to do where it's like in the cartoons or the old uh, George Melies movies where a person is dreaming, they're asleep in their bed and then they do like a double exposure and the transparent spirit stands up and leaves the body to walk around to represent the dream. Yeah. 
we got matte effects, we got double exposure, we got stop motion. I don't think these things were appearing prominently in too many 1981 or post-1981 blockbusters. Yeah, but her soul gets beckoned out onto the balcony by this big stop-motion vulture that shows up, and the vulture carries her off into the night. So Perseus deduces that this must have something to do with how she's getting the riddles, I guess. So now we get a moment where Amon, Burgess Meredith, steps in and says, Well, it would be impossible to follow a flying creature through the night, unless... (laughs) And the answer is, I guess one of these winged horses is still alive. And wouldn't you know it, it's the only winged horse you've ever heard of. It's Pegasus. So using, again, this invisibility helmet, they go down to the river... Maybe this is one of those moon wells where Pegasus comes to drink and they work together to like ambush Pegasus and lasso it. Another one of those key Harryhausen rodeo scenes. I actually thought this one was kind of cool because Hamlin, Perseus, does the invisibility thing and he starts walking off and then... Burgess Meredith hands him the rope. And so then he's walking around invisible carrying the rope. And I don't know how they did that. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, that's cool. I also like the Pegasus scenes in general. I thought that they did some cool stuff with like having these really cool vistas and just having the actor Harry Hamlin or whatever his name is on top of the horse just kind of plastered on top of the frame. But Like you're seeing these really huge, beautiful scenery landscapes. And it was kind of cool, like flying through them with the the Pegasus. Yeah, I liked it. So uh, one one thing here. So we had had multiple proclamations of characters being beautiful prior to meeting Andromeda. There was Aphrodite and then Thetis. And none of them were the type of beautiful that I would be like, oh, yeah, I get it. But then I thought Andromeda did, like, she's maybe not Helena Troy, like, could start a war, but I could see some desperate dude putting their life on the line to try and win Andromeda's hand. And hey, it comes with a kingdom, too. Oh, I agree. No, I was in the same boat. She is super pretty. Yeah. Like, yeah, I get it here. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get back to that. But now Perseus has the means to fly after the dream vulture thing. And he does. He follows it through the night. And they arrive at this island where Calavos lives. This is where he's delivering the riddles, sure enough, to the dreaming Andromeda. She's, like, summoned before him. And I thought this was pretty creepy. Because he's like, behold, the next riddle! And one of his servants holds up this scroll that has, like, Greek letters drawn on it in blood red. And we can't read what it says, but everybody, like, rears back. And I thought it was pretty frightening. Like, just the fact that we weren't able to actually read what it said. Uh, it was like meanie meanie tekel parson from the Bible. You know, the, the writing on the wall. Just this menacing message that, you know, means no good, but is just nonsense to your eyes. Right. And this is the scene where we meet Calibos and see him in his proper form for the first time. 
And so what is Calavos like? Yeah. So this is my other uh, Max Magician connection is he made me think a little bit of King Dagda. He's got like the intensive, uglifying makeup on his face to make him look monstrous. Uh, he's got real puby hair on top of his head and devil horns coming out. And he grimaces a lot, just like King G- Dagda did in Max Magician. So I kept expecting him to go, bah, but he never he never did any of that. And he's also got, I don't know like exactly what it is, but like this prosthetic hand thing with these real long, creepy nails. And remember, he has like Andromeda's spirit or something there. And he's like rubbing his creepy hands up and down her arm with these just gross long nails coming out of his hands. Definitely like a, a memorable introduction to this character. And then when you zoom away from him, you see him all hunched over with like a long tail in stop motion. Yeah, close up, he's a person. Further out, he's always stop motiony with his tail wriggling around. To the extent that I was all in on any character here, Calibus is the guy. He, he was, I liked him when he was on, I was bringing in Calibus. I kept wanting there to be more Calibus. So, yeah. <laughs> episode title contender real puby hair (laughs) but while this is going on uh calabos notices that perseus is sneaking around invisible because he's leaving these cartoony footprints and uh, before perseus can completely get away calabos jumps him and we get their first duel during which perseus gets his helmet knocked away so the animators or whoever don't have to deal with invisible Perseus anymore the rest of the movie. <laughs> but Perseus cuts off Calabos's hand. So I saw a lot of parallels with Star Wars in this movie. Mm. So now we've got at least one chopped off hand. Right. So Perseus gets away. Calabos is maimed. And Calabos runs off and cries to his mom. Says, you got to do something here, Ma. <laughs> And she says, well, I can't, because Zeus says, I can't harm his precious man-child, Perseus. But then Calibus says, well, then you can seek revenge on the city of Joppa. And that's what they're going to try next. Anything they can do to get revenge on Joppa. But Perseus goes back to Joppa, and he presents himself as a suitor for Andromeda, And so he gets challenged with this riddle that I guess he saw the riddle ahead of time. Although I still think it could have stumped him if he wasn't really super lucky. Because (laughs) it turns out that it's like this really obscure reference to a ring that Calabos wears on his hand. So kind of like the the riddle game in The Hobbit where the, the stumping riddle is, what have I got in my pocket? It's like, how the hell are you gonna know that? If you don't have access to Bilbo's pocket. Well, just by coincidence, Perseus has Calabos' hand in his pocket. He's like, oh, he's got the ring on his hand. So here's the answer. That's pretty funny. Just like pulls it. He happens to have the exact thing he needs. Reminds me of this time in high when I was in high school. And I would carry a screwdriver around with me in the fall because I was in marching band and... I needed to like attach and unattach to my trumpet the thing that hold, held the sheet music for when we were practicing. And so I would always have a, a screwdriver with me. And one time 
some person just shouted. I was I think it was on the school bus shouted out of the blue. Anybody got a screwdriver? Like, of course, nobody on a school bus has a screwdriver. But I was sitting like right in front of him. And like, I just immediately pulled it out of my pocket and held it right in front of him. It's like that was the kind of luck that Perseus needed to have. He needed to have the exact screwdriver in his pocket. That was the answer to the riddle. And it was a terrible riddle. You can't call it a riddle. It's like, what is three circles? And one of them is a jewel. Oh, I guess it's the ring. Like, that's not a riddle. I don't think you know what riddles are, Calibus. <laughs> it's really just intended to burn more people at the stake. <laughs> I've taken to carrying a spoon. You never know when there might be soup. In the words of Larry Blameyer. What's that from? It's uh, the guy who made uh, Lost Skeleton of Cadavra. He's got a YouTube series where he just has like 10 second philosophy videos. Oh, nice. And your, your screwdriver story made me think of that. It's like, you, you got to be prepared, essentially. So, hey, he answered the riddle. He's going to marry the princess. Story's over. Things have wrapped up nicely and earlier than usual, in the words of Homer Simpson. But unfortunately, something else is going to go wrong because they're getting married for whatever reason in the temple of Thetis underneath a gigantic Maggie Smith statue. <laughs> I want a Maggie Smith statue in my house. Yeah, Dan asked me before the meeting, what do you think happened to that Maggie Smith statue? Do you think Maggie Smith still has it? <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, it's possible it wasn't really the size that it seems to be. Like, it could have been, you know, a miniature. But this is one of those giant, like, Parthenon-filling statues, as it appears in the film. And it's looming over everybody here at the wedding. And Queen Cassiopeia, another star name, Andromeda's mom is giving her away. She says something along the lines of, And I give to you Andromeda, the most beautiful woman in the world, more beautiful even than anybody in heaven, too. Even the beautiful goddess Thetis. <laughs> As they're here under this Thetis Maggie Smith statue, another reference to Maggie Smith being super attractive. But I guess her beauty is outdone by Andromeda, and she is not happy about that. She's going to go into Snow White, Evil Queen, Vanity Rage. So we get this, again, cool but quaint effect where they do the, like, Disney Haunted Mansion face projection on a statue thing. Where they shine Maggie Smith's actual face onto the Maggie Smith statue, and it starts talking to everybody. The thing that I really love, though, happened even before this. It's like, you tell she gets mad, and the way that she takes out her anger is she decapitates her own statue. The head falls off the statue and lands in front of everyone kind of at a skewed angle, and then we get the projection. So it's like this headless statue on its side talking to everyone. I thought it would at least crush the queen with her head, but yeah. it didn't. It just rolled out into the middle of everybody. But that is a real power move by Thetis. I got some respect for Thetis after that. Like... The you know that she's sending a message. She decapitates her own statue and starts speaking from it. That that was a good move. Yeah, and so, remember, Thetis was just looking for a reason to destroy Joppa. And so what she says is, listen, you've crossed a line here, and so <laughs> Andromeda needs to be sacrificed to the Kraken in 30 days, or he's going to sink your city. He's just going to wreck it. Well, now 
Everybody is gloomy. Oh, the other thing... <laughs> the other thing is, to be sacrificed, she has to be a virgin. So, uh, they just gotta sit on their hands for 30 days. Perseus and Andromeda here. I will say I really like this. This is one of my favorite sets in the whole movie. Because it's this big multi-story i don't know how like they must have actually built it temple with two layers of columns and this huge green drape over the maggie smith statue um just a really cool set yeah and there's lots of people standing around so now second half of the movie perseus has got a new quest he's got to find a way in 30 days to defeat this legendary monster the kraken impossible unless yeah, he's going to have to go through a few steps, though, to, to get to the solution. <laughs> uh, but luckily, Zeus has got his back again. He goes to the gods and says, Listen, he lost one of his gifts in the swamp, so you really got to give him something else. So, Athena, that pet owl that you have, that you've always loved, you got to let Perseus have that. <laughs> and Athena, this is the time when one of the gods says, "Um, No, Zeus, I'm not going to do that. But the answer is Bubo, the robot owl. The uh, gods go to Hephaestus, a god we haven't seen yet, the smith god. And he makes a mechanical owl for Perseus. And uh, if you've heard of this movie before, this to me was the other iconic thing. Because a lot of people say that Bubo is a ripoff of R2-D2 from Star Wars a couple years earlier. Because he's a little white and blue robot who goes around burbling and the hero can understand him. Right. He's just a Star Wars droid. That's all he is. Yeah. Comic relief too, kind of. He's got like some cute animal noises and motions. And like the way we meet him is he flies and lands on a branch and falls over off the branch. And oh, boobo. <laughs> Yeah, he makes kind of like a flute sound to talk. He's like, woo, 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 woo. I mean, I was just thinking R2-D2 knockoff, but... Yeah, and he's he's vaguely white and blue, and he's short. I, I actually kind of like Bubo. I thought Bubo was interesting, just had absolutely no role in a freaking Greek mythology movie. Yeah. I'm not sure what they were thinking there, other than people like Star Wars, so here's a droid. <laughs> we need to put a robot in. If, if people... Yeah. Somewhere. How can a hero complete his quest unless he has the help of a droid? That's what audiences will be thinking in 1981. <laughs> Bubo does have a purpose, though, because he is going to guide Perseus across the swamps to the realm of the Stygian witches. Now, they never say the fates, but these are the same people as the fates from Disney's Hercules. Yeah, exactly. These three fates and also the Pegasus, I thought were the ones where the people making the Hercules Disney movie were like, okay, that's what that looks like. Let's just go put that in our movie. Yeah, so these are three old ladies who have, like, seer powers. Uh, we don't see them, like, telling the future or anything. They just kind of know a lot of stuff. And their gimmick is they don't have any eyes on their heads. They have this one external eye that they pass around and have to share. One thing I liked is that the whole group decides that they're going to go on this journey to meet the fates. And so Princess Andromeda is there for the journey. And even that caveman guard from before that I wanted to see more of, now he's back in the story again. He just walks in and is like, and I will join the quest. <laughs> and this guy's name is Thalo, apparently. 
So this made me really happy. I, I was afraid we'd just have him for one scene. I lost track of who this guy was. I knew that there was a, a guard with them, but I could not remember who he was or where we had met him. Yeah, I, I felt vindicated because just <laughs> when he made that big speech at the start, I was like, man, are they really just going to use this guy for one scene? But no, <laughs> he, he comes back. Here he is. And they do make it across the swamp. They they talk to the witches, like Dan said earlier. It's not enough to go to point B. They're going to tell you to go to point C and D and get this other thing to fight this other person. Because remember, ultimate goal is find a way to fight the Kraken. They say that the way you got to do it is bring back the head of Medusa. Because, as you probably know, if you look Medusa in the eye, you turn to stone. And because of that... It's impossible to kill Medusa unless you have a shiny <laughs> shield. Yes. So the idea of the title of the movie, Clash of the Titans, the fates here say that uh, confronting the Kraken with Medusa is going to be a titan against a titan. So I don't think they actually do say the thing, but this is what it means, I guess. is the uh, It's going to be Medusa versus the Kraken in a sort of way. This is the Clash of the Titans. Uh, so to go face Medusa, he kind of rounds up this secondary group of like red shirts, basically. Faceless guys who are expendable. Yeah, you know they're going to die because of that. They have got to go to confront Medusa, who lives on an island in the River Styx at the edge of the underworld. Uh, luckily, though, Thalo gets to go. So we're going to have some prominent Thalos scenes here. Yeah, it, it made me laugh. There was a, a thing with Andromeda being like, oh, I, I want to come with you. And then she goes to sleep and then she wakes up and he's gone. And she's like, oh, no. And she's sad because because Perseus left in the night when she was sleeping. And then smash cut to Perseus. And he's like, well, I guess I'm at River Styx now. He was just immediately there like with his, <laughs> his team. I wasn't complaining. I'm glad we didn't have to trudge through too much, yeah. Yeah, I was already looking at my watch at this point. But one cool thing here, of course, we're on the River Styx, so we got to meet the ferryman who brings the souls across into the underworld. He's the straight-up Grim Reaper here. He is a skeleton in a cloak, which you don't see right away, because he rose up and he's covered in the cloak, and then he, like, leans back and you see the skeleton jaw in the shadow of the cloak, this might be the best single skeleton character I've seen. He's a good skelly, for sure. It's it's big, I mean, that's big praise, but he really just looks like a moving skeleton. I mean, he's up there with the skeletons from Jason and the Argonauts. He doesn't have to do as much, but, like, every little shot you get of him, he's doing something creepy skeleton-y. Like, his hands grip the coin that Perseus hands him, and it just is a skeleton hand. I, I thought it was well done. So everybody gets on the boat. They they go over to where Medusa is on the island. We get this extended sequence where they're journeying into this like torch lit chamber where Medusa is. And she starts stalking the soldiers that have come with Perseus. What do you think about this Medusa scene, Dan? So this Medusa scene blew my mind. This is easily, for me, the best scene in the movie. Just really awesome atmosphere because everything is lit by this flickering red, almost satanic, like fireplace light source. 
and it's it's just coating everything in red around it and it's actually flickering and Medusa's shadow is changing. I have absolutely no idea how they managed to pull that off. And then of course they're doing a lot of stuff with mirrors too because everybody's got to not look Medusa in the eye and it really seems like it's just Perseus who mostly remembers this but and it's really cool. It's like I think of the kind of trademark version of this kind of scene is the one from Jurassic Park again where there's the two kids hiding from the raptors. And it's like that exact kind of thing where you don't know exactly how far away our heroes are from the scary thing because of a combination of mirrors and like cool camera angles that there's this tension about like, when is the thing going to strike? When are you going to see it? When is our hero going to make their move? Medusa just looks so freaking awesome. Badass, like the skin moving in a snake-like manner like a semi-human face and form. This was like the masterpiece scene of the movie for me. I really love this scene. Yeah, I think Medusa here is the best creature that Harryhausen made in terms of looking alive. Like, I think it's a model the whole time, but when it goes into close-up, it looks like it could be an actor. Right. Like, they did a good job making this thing look alive. At least I typically think of Medusa being like a woman on the bottom snakes on the top and that's it but this is really like a naga from dungeons and dragons she's a snake woman on the bottom too like she's slithering around on a snake tail and she has a bow and arrow to top it off like the stone making thing is not enough she's actively shooting people right and then we do get the effect i was worried we weren't going to get the effect where she turns someone to stone because i think there's only two people left our main guy and one other person. I forget where the buddy is at this point. Whatever his name. Thelos? What is his name? Yeah, Thalo. Thalo is still with us at this point. Okay. but Gotta keep Thalo safe. Medusa shoots one of the guards. And then the guard's like, huh? uh, And looks up at Medusa. And then Medusa does the eye effect right as he's dying. And it's really creepy. Like, she gets really bright green eyes. And then the person turning to stone doesn't just, like, turn into like a solid version of themselves. They like get kind of decrepit and then crumble as they get turned to stone. It's a, it's a neat effect. But Perseus has that shiny shield that the gods gave him and he uses it to avoid looking at Medusa directly. And, you know, if you know one thing about Perseus before this movie, it's that he cuts off the head of Medusa. So lo and behold, that's what he does. Hacks it right off. One kind of interesting thing is I guess... Medusa has like xenomorph blood. It's super acidic and can eat through just about anything. And so he's got to be careful of that. And she's just got this like oozing syrupy jello blood. Yeah, I don't know what was up with the blood. I feel like you could have cut this whole thing because I didn't know the blood was an issue. And then the witches were like, but you can survive the blood because you've touched our magic eye. And so, okay, I guess he can survive the blood. So I'm not scared of the blood. So then he, he holds the blood, but blood burning through things ends up not being a major component to Medusa's threat. Yeah, they could have left it out, saved a couple minutes. You're absolutely right. But they wanted you to care about it, because we do get some shots of the blood just, like, oozing creepily. That's true, yeah. That is kind of cool looking. But it seems like Perseus is well on his way to being victorious in this thing. He takes the head back to his camp. Thalo's still there, chilling. And they go to sleep for the night. Calibos slinks in and he pokes a hole in the head bag with this like trident 
prosthetic hand that he now has. So the blood drips out and it spawns a bunch of giant scorpions. My question at this point is why did Calavos not just take the head? That's an excellent question. Really seems like the obvious thing to do. <laughs> Perseus is not going to win if he doesn't have this head. Calavos could have just won right here. Just take it and walk away. But no, we got to care about that stupid blood. And now there's scorpions all over for some reason. And one of the scorpions kills Thalo. And I'm not okay with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't realize it was that guy at first. It was someone died and I, and Perseus was looking all emotional about it. And I was like, this is like the fourth person who's died. And then we got to zoom. In. I was like, oh, okay. It's, it's that one dude who I don't remember where he's from from earlier in the movie, but I get it now. It's the one you got to care about. It's uh, it's like Max Magician Morning Crimble. <laughs> I would give all my magic for Thalo to live. <laughs> the worst possible time wish. <laughs> and I'll bet Calavos regrets that he didn't just walk off with the head because now Perseus is pissed he catches up with Calavos and kills him. This is the end of Calavos. Kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, it's like Boba Fett. Boba Fett just falls into the Sarlacc pit. He's like, oh, he could have been cooler. He had a better death. And then Calavos is just kind of gone. To me, Calavos was the MVP. So when he just kind of died and it was over, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, I guess that's the end of Calavos. Well, they, they remade the movie in 2010, and it's got uh, Liam Neeson, I think, as Zeus, and uh, the Avatar guy as Perseus. So maybe we got to watch that one to see how Calavos fares there. I think that one had a sequel, too. I was going to ask if you'd seen that one. Yeah, I, I haven't, but the sequel was called Wrath of the Titans. I learned in preparation for this episode that there was actually a comic book follow-up to the original movie called Wrath of the Titans. Oh, interesting. So I wonder if it draws on that at all. It'd be cool if it did. Also, at this point, I don't know when this happened, but somewhere along the way, I guess Calibos and his goons captured Pegasus also. I I don't know when that happened. I, I wasn't clear on that. Yeah, I, it was kind of stupid. But there was one point where Calibos, I think it was Calibos said, we must capture Pegasus. Go get him. And like, I don't know, after all the flack that I guess Calibos got for neglecting the winged horses when they could just steal it back from Perseus. I feel like Perseus should get some uh, into trouble there too, because he just let, and then he forgot about Pegasus for a long time. There's like no Pegasus for two thirds of the movie here. And now we're back. Yeah. I just got the feeling that Calavos really should have won <laughs> this story. He's like Christoph Waltz and Inglorious Bastards. It's like he's one step ahead most of the time, and it's just like a fluke of plot armor that all of a sudden the good guys pull ahead. But Perseus, who is he going to send to free Pegasus? He's not going to go do it himself. Thalo is out of the picture now. He's not going to go get Ammon. <laughs> he sends Bubo. He just tells the little robot owl, go free Pegasus. Well, why didn't you do that ten scenes ago? Yeah, to me, it's putting a lot of trust in Bubo's abilities. <laughs> I mean, I can see that a bird would be able to guide you to a place. You know, homing pigeons do that. It's like, 
okay, the bird is going to go to where the witches live and you follow it. That to me is Bubo being useful enough. <laughs> right. But no, Perseus trusts that this little tiny owl is going to be able to go sneak into an enemy army camp and free a horse from a cage and bring the horse back. I mean, I guess it can fly, but there's no other like guidance or assistance. Bubo, I know you don't have opposable thumbs, but I am confident that you can fly there, open the cage, defeat all of the villains, and let Pegasus free. But also, like, this whole time, I feel like Perseus is also, like, he's been injured or something, and he's, like, crawling on the ground, like, I must make it, but there's no way I will make it back. It's impossible unless Bubo can free Pegasus. And, like, for now, I don't know how long this is going on that he's, like, supposedly like half dying here on the ground while Bubo has to go and get free this horse. I don't know. They do make a point of that though, that he's like super exhausted and messed up because even his little action figure back on the God's gaming table is like retching and crawling around. Mm -hmm. But sure enough, Bubo goes into the camp and lets Pegasus out of the cage in this scene. That's just like a hundred percent Harryhausen creatures. I guess there's maybe a real cage at some scale, but it's a little mechanical owl freeing a winged horse. Yeah, and, and defending the horse, I think, is that big old vulture we met earlier on. So it's like a, a three-way Harryhausen action we got going. But Pegasus is successfully reunited. Bubo did it. Good job, Bubo. Now the day of the sacrifice has arrived. So they truck Andromeda out to the sea cliff and they chain her up. Poseidon goes back down underwater and releases the Kraken. It looks like Perseus is out of the picture for a little while. Like he shows up at the very last minute. And I thought it was kind of funny that he comes flying in on Pegasus and <laughs> the Kraken just swats him down like smack. And he's <laughs> down crumpled in the ocean. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Sad ending. <laughs> We're done. No, because, <laughs> of course, Bubo is there to save the day. Uh, Bubo fishes Medusa's head out of the sea, gives it back to Perseus, and he's got another chance. There is one shot here that I really liked involving Bubo, even though Bubo got stupider and stupider as the movie went along, or at least more ridiculous, maybe not stupider, where Bubo is kind of flying towards the Kraken, but... I feel like we, when we see the Kraken, we see he's big, but we don't really have a sense of like how big. And then Bubo keeps flying and getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And then uh, that was when it hit me that like, oh, this Kraken is like 400 feet big. This thing is a huge mamma jamma. That's a really good point. I hadn't even thought about that. But yeah, like the little tiny owl gives us an excuse to see the Kraken super close up and all his scales. If you're picturing a Kraken as being like a squiddy thing with a bunch of arms. That's not really what this is. It does have more than two arms. It's like a creature from the Black Lagoon, but with four arms, like whoever it is, I think maybe uh, Balrog in Mortal Kombat, whoever the dude is that has four arms. It's like that, but green, scaly, really tall. That's this Kraken. And this scene made me think of the Kaiju-Godzilla connection. Like, this really feels like a kaiju-type scene with the big old monster 
stomping through town, going to cause trouble, although he stays in the ocean. But I was wondering if there was like much artistic connection between kaiju films and Harryhausen, because there was a, an overlap in terms of time that they these things were being made. Like I'm wondering if Harryhausen had these Japanese films imported so he could refine his craft, watching what they were doing over there in Japan and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's definitely a possibility. He has some giant monster attack films. I mean, it came from beneath the sea with the big octopus that's wrecking a city. I think he did one called The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, where it's this big lizard thing specifically coming into the city. And I think that was right around the time of the first Godzilla. I don't remember which came first. I definitely think there's some of that same DNA at work here. Uh, but in the nick of time, Perseus is able to unveil the head of Medusa and the Kraken turns to stone. And just like that dude earlier, not just turns to stone, but like crumbles and explodes. So lots of dusty pieces. So Perseus is one. He did it. Huzzah. Yeah, huzzah and indeed. Huzzah, huzzah, huzzah. And he gets to marry the princess. And we cut back one more time to Mount Olympus where Zeus says, Okay, you guys, now for real, nobody mess with Perseus. <laughs> he needs to have a happy ending now because I say so. And Thetis is like, okay, fine. Then as a final act of tribute... Zeus sets them all in the stars. So there's going to be a Perseus constellation and a Pegasus constellation, an Andromeda galaxy and a Cassiopeia. And there was even another one that you mentioned that I don't even think he calls out. What was that one? Cetus. Is that what we were talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a Cetus? There is a Cetus. Yes. Okay. I guess they don't mention it because they call it the Kraken here. But Yeah. I don't know if you said Pegasus, but I think Pegasus gets one too. Right. Right. It's kind of interesting because he says there they'll be remembered for all eternity, even after the gods are forgotten. I thought this was kind of a cool little shout out to how stories endure. Like people don't believe, at least not a lot of people, in Zeus and his pantheon anymore. But like the story is still told. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that is cool. The The legend of Perseus exists still and it's not just being told on crockery it's being told in movies and then even the movies you know live on we're still talking about this movie that's 40 years old now right if i must be crotchety for a moment i don't know what cassiopeia did in this movie to deserve her own constellation so this is andromeda's mom and like really all she does is cause trouble by like saying hey my daughter is even more beautiful than than the gods and goddesses so you know and then oh well we must and then she becomes one of the heroes and gets her own star so i guess being related to the hero will do that for you but yeah more beautiful than professor mcgonagall <laughs> that's i guess a controversial claim <laughs> that's another episode title there <laughs> uh but uh yeah this idea that stories live on it uh, called to mind for me a quote from William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, where uh, the conspirators are are talking to each other. The guys who they're either just about to assassinate Caesar or they've just assassinated Caesar. And one of them says, how many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over in states unborn and accents yet unknown? And of course, when Shakespeare wrote that, he was talking about Renaissance England, 
Like the ancient Romans had no concept that their stories were still going to be getting told in Renaissance England. But of course, the Renaissance England stories are still being acted over in states unborn and accents unknown. I like that. That's a real good connection. Yeah. That was something that they uh, brought up in uh, the Ken Burns Civil War movie, because at one point the Booth brothers played the roles of the Julius Caesar assassins. You know, what did John Wilkes Booth go on to do, but assassinate a political leader? Right. So he's acting out the the scene in a a state unborn and an accent unknown. Shakespeare didn't know that he'd be the talk of the town in America centuries later. So just it just goes on and on. Not to belabor the point too much, but I, I just think it's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I like that connection. That It's an interesting way to go out, especially also as like the end of an era for Harryhausen. I don't know if he knew that this was his last hurrah or not, but like as a testament to the enduring power of art and stories and how, yeah, we're watching that now, 40 years later of a 3,000-year-old story or however long. Oh, good call. Yeah, this is the legacy that you leave right. when you create a work of art. And that's The Clash of the Titans from 1981. A little unwieldy, a little epic. It uh, it stretches on a bit, and there's lots of twists and turns, but uh, that's the story. And it will live on until the gods are forgotten. So, Dan, movie as a whole, things that struck you that we haven't talked about yet. Good things, not so good things. What are you thinking? What's in your mind? In general, I thought the movie was just a little... And you already mentioned this. We already talked about it a little really over padded it's it's a long two hours and a laborious two hours as our extensive summary will indicate and i like you was checking my watch a couple of times i particularly i I watched the original star wars a new hope you know about a week ago or so for the first time in a long time and that's a movie that is about this long maybe a little bit shorter than it but you're never checking your watch that, that knows how to pace a movie this one, they needed a better script to, to really engage you. I really feel like the script and to some extent the acting let down Harryhausen and the, the large production values of this, this movie down. Yeah, my main good thing note in our prep document is that this is a tour de force of Harryhausen's work. A good one to go out on for him in that he really creates a bunch of creatures and they're on prominent display. Medusa especially, as I mentioned, is really cool and lifelike. And yeah. it was clear that uh, he was, you know, working on an opus. And let us not forget Bubo. Yes, certainly. I mean, he is cool looking. He he looks like a robot owl and he flies around. So I'm always impressed when stop motion creatures can completely leave the ground. That's a good point. It's a, It's a cool effect. There's really just a wide variety of effects. It's not just the stop motion, but you get the disaster flooding footage early on and Pegasus flying through the air, like superimposed over these huge vistas and the statues crumbling with all of a sudden Maggie Smith's face appears. It's it's not just a, a one trick pony. This movie There's there's a lot of a lot of cool stuff to look at. Yeah, it's neat. Trying a lot of different things to reiterate, though. I thought the introduction of Calibos was really whack. I I would have liked that to have been presented in a different order and just like 
let us see some of the bad things that he did so that we hate him if we're supposed to hate him because I, I i didn't really feel that no other than he's kind of a gross goblin man i'm team calibos so he forgot to feed the horses for a few days and now he's got this just terrible fate living in a swamp has to give out these riddles to people who want to marry his fiance and then he's kind of bumbling around i don't know i, I feel bad for calibos yeah you can almost draw a line between calibos and caladin hockley from Titanic, being the <laughs> the wronged fiance. I just wanted to say again how much of a throwback this movie feels like. Uh, so it's charmingly vintage, and it definitely fits alongside Harryhausen's other movies. But Star Wars was four years before this, and you've got you know spaceships flying around with no means visible of support, and it's just breathtaking. This is not in the same league. No, there's there's more seams here, and it's you're right. It just feels like from an earlier era. Like, the way that you feel about the movie is going to hinge at least a little bit on how you feel about Bubo. <laughs> like, does Bubo bug you? Are you annoyed by Bubo? I wasn't really. I'm exaggerating a bit. But it doesn't quite fit the tone of everything else. It's, he shows up late... And he's like trying to be silly. And I don't know. <laughs> yeah. He looks cool, though. He's memorable. Yeah. It's like, what was that movie with the robot owl? It was this movie. Of course. Yeah. The one that's about an ancient Greek myth. That's that's the one where R2-D2 had wings. That's right. <laughs> uh, but uh, what would you propose as a rewrite for this one, Dan? Yes. So I have a couple of proposed rewrites and they're not too in-depth, but I have three possible angles that I would take. You choose one of these. So my first one is, okay, instead of making Calibos the villain, let's make it from his perspective. See everything from, from his point of view. Then you have Perseus gifted the life that he was promised. And so he can have like a descent into madness trying to stop Perseus. Like everything he does, it like, it almost works. And then bam, out comes Zeus saying, nah, you gotta, you got this magic weapon. You got this Flying robot owl, you got this thing, and and Calibus just goes more and more mad until a tragic ending for Calibus. He gets murdered by Perseus. I also feel like if you wrote it this way, it feels like it would be a good musical, like a wicked style musical or something like that. So that's that's rewrite one A is make this whole thing a musical. I'm on board. I would watch that. Proposed rewrite two is make it more of a comedy. So like I, I, just this guy Perseus, this Harry Hamlin dude. He seems like someone who would be cast to play an idiot jock in something. And so I have this vision of like, I'm thinking in Enchanted when the James Marsden character is like, Giselle! And that's like Perseus's personality here, where he's like overconfidently going into things and only bumbling through it. And, and the addendum here is that maybe Ammon, the Obi-Wan Kenobi actor character, is that one giving him the good ideas and actually like making stuff happen and like solving the problems as they go. But the idea here is that make Perseus is, is just a big old idiot who's stumbling through all of it and somehow always ends up getting things going right and getting credit for it. And maybe he has some sort of poetic comeuppance, but it, it, that that's the my second proposed rewrite. Lean into him being a dumb jock who's being gifted everything. Okay, so more music more comedy. What I'm hearing here is make it the Disney Hercules. 
That is one of my favorite Disney movies. Yeah. Here's my last one. And again, you don't have to do all of these. Do do one or two or three or maybe some combination of them. But here's proposed rewrite three. Just make the whole thing weirder. Like make it 200% weirder and like make it horny and make it psychosexual and all this stuff. Like there's a lot of things here that really could be played up. Like, I don't know. I'm thinking have Andromeda seem to actually be kind of attracted to the weird monstrous Calibos guy, kind of like in the, the old 1930s Beauty and the Beast or whatever year that was. Have Cassiopeia maybe finds herself lusting after Perseus. I saw I saw some like chemistry between Cassiopeia and Perseus. Okay, so you think there's something there? <laughs> I thought there was something there. When I read that um, Harry Hamlin's actual wife was somewhere in the cast, I was wondering if that was her, but it, it wasn't. It was uh, Aphrodite. Gotcha, but... yeah. They exchanged some looks. Okay, okay, so there's something there. And then I feel like it is not hard at all to make Medusa slinky and seductive in addition to turning you to stone. You think there's like any imagery you could use there for, for, for sexing it up a little? Yeah, perhaps. And then I think also like, you know, we know that the gods, it's it's text, it's not even subtext, that the gods here are canoodling with the mortals. I feel like you could play that up a little bit too. Like... They're manipulating because they want to be in bed with these characters here. The last thing you could do if you if you went this route is they they emphasize that Andromeda must be a virgin. Make the Kraken like have lots of super phallic imagery with him. Like make him look like a big old penis. I think that would have that would have added to the the psychosexual undertones <laughs> here. Yeah. Not enough tentacles in this movie. <laughs> they call it a Kraken and there's no tentacles. It's messed up, man. Just make it more like, you know, the whole thing with Oedipus, there's lots of weird attraction things going on in Oedipus. If you're going to do a Greek tragedy type thing or, you know, ancient Greek tale, more of that weird stuff in there. That would have made this more fun. So that's my option. Number three is just just make it weird and horny. Okay, so music, comedy and sexiness. You basically need to make it a beach party movie. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah, that's, I guess, my problem solving for all movies is yeah make it more like beach party and or just make it a hangout movie there you go we need less stuff happening (laughs) too much is happening in this movie just do less oh wait you haven't seen uh (laughs) you haven't seen forgetting sarah marshall the paul red plays this character where he's coaching jason siegel's character on how to surf but the only advice he can give is do less no you're doing too much so i think of that line all the time no just do less so. <laughs> All right. Well, are we ready to uh, say at last? Is this epic last film of Ray Harryhausen good? I'm ready. Yeah. Let's pencil in our numbers. So, is it good? Is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, up to our masterpiece rating, Tour Day Good, an eight out of eight. So. It is now, since I'm the guest, not the host, I will answer, is Clash of the Titans good? So, from a production standpoint, this is like a really competent and impressive film. And you're absolutely right that it's straight up brilliant with Harryhausen's work. Like when Harryhausen's stuff is on screen, it's pretty fun to watch. It's pretty riveting. And that Medusa scene is just awesome. You use the term tour de force. I'm thinking of that Medusa scene when you use that phrase. That's a... a, just some really cool stop motion, Harryhausen, immersive, interacting with what's going on around it. Really cool effects. That said, 
the story was and acting were just really not doing it for me. And I was kind of checked out and like only glancing up when something cool was happening, some some cool monster effect. So for me, when I find something is not doing it for me, but has one really tremendous thing, that is a good-ish movie for me. And that's where I'm going to land on Clash of the Titans. I found this to be a good-ish movie. It, it's a little too stodgy to get up into good, but it definitely has enough to be worth watching at least once and, and definitely flipping through a couple of specific scenes and a couple specific moments. So I think Clash of the Titans is good-ish. That's a four out of eight on our is a good scale. What about you, Brian? Cool. So I came into this today ready to give it a uh, very good, a six out of eight. When I was watching it, I was having a good time for the most part. And it did call to mind probably a lot of nostalgia for the other Harry Hausen movies that I'd watched growing up. But it drags. It's not as good as some of those other ones. And in reflecting in our discussion, uh, that's coming out to me to the forefront. Uh, I think I got to give this one a five out of eight, a good. I recommend it. I'd, I'd say go check it out, but uh, you might be looking at your watch. Cool. So, yeah, I would say go check out Jason and the Argonauts, though. That's uh, a very cool one that's from a little earlier, from 1963. Belongs a little more in its era. The skeleton battle in that one is awesome. Also, I want to mention the uh, fight against Talos who is a giant kind of statue robot man made out of bronze that is pretty creepy. Watch the Talos clip on YouTube. Yeah, I really like Harryhausen's effects. I mean, the the two movies that I watched this week of him really bring something special to the screen. And I think it just looks cooler than CGI. I don't know why it does, but it just does. Like, I get more excited to see these stop motion effects that I know are like wizardry in the camera and not just pixels on a screen. I don't know what it is. Yeah, I mean, just think about how much time he spent laboring in his workshop. It blows my mind. Yeah. Putting all this stuff together. It's just got to be like day and night, just him by himself tinkering. And uh, yeah, that's the movie. So, Dan, what have you got up next for us here on The Goods? So as Brian mentioned at the start of the episode, we are recording this just a bit before Thanksgiving, uh, a couple days before. So we'll be watching... The next movie during our Thanksgiving break, our Thanksgiving couple days off. And so I wanted to pick a Thanksgiving movie. And unlike Christmas, Valentine's Day, maybe some others, there aren't too many Thanksgiving movies that just pop into my head. I feel like it's not quite as ripe with dedicated specials and and themed movies. There's certainly some. And as I was digging, I found more and more. In fact, I found an excellent letterboxed list called The Never-Ending Thanksgiving Movie List. And this runs almost 300 movies long that have some connection to Thanksgiving, although some of them are a little bit tenuous. Yeah, very tenuous. Not every movie with a Native American in it is a Thanksgiving movie, (laughs) Mr. Listmaker. But there were a lot here that I discovered, and the one that I'm going to pick is not the one that I'm most excited to see, but I think it's the one that, between me and Brian might generate the most enthusiasm and certainly we'll have some connection to things we've talked about. And this is the 2015, I think it was Lifetime, some cable channel TV movie made by the Jim Henson company called Turkey Hollow. So I see it listed on IMDb as Jim Henson's Turkey Hollow from 2015. 
And I can just tell you up front, it's about a brother and a sister who go to some older, bizarre relative who lives in a weird area searching for supernatural things. So right there, you got some uh, Gravity Falls connections. And I, th- I was reading a synopsis of it, and I think we'll see some connections to, to movies we've seen. And I think it'll just be a, a fun and interesting watch to see like a Thanksgiving thing with Muppety creatures. And Brian, maybe you can talk a little bit about your connection to Jim Henson, because I know you got some f- strong feelings about him. So I think that could be fun. Oh yeah, you'll you'll hear you'll hear more. Uh, I'm a big Muppet fan, uh, although I think it's a little bold to call it Jim Henson's Turkey Hollow. Yeah, when did what year did he die? When Jim Henson died in 1990. So, <laughs> unless this was brewing for a quarter century. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. I I'm definitely curious though. I haven't seen or even heard of this one, so I'm looking forward to it. We'll get into the spirit, and it's only 99 cents on Amazon. All right. Well, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Brian, good to talk with you about Clash of the Titans. Oh, you too, Dan. It was a bright point. Now that you've heard from us, we want to hear from you. Email us a review of Clash of the Titans or any film we've previously discussed, and each week we'll read one of your reviews on the podcast. If we pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card. That's enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Maybe even a couple movie rentals if you spring for a double feature of Max Magician and Turkey Hollow. (laughs) That's right. All right. Well, talk to you guys soon. Thanks for joining us again here on The Goods. (laughs) 